You're listening to Germantown Community Radio, WGGTLP 92.9 FM, Philadelphia, streaming at gtownradio.com. This is Confessions of a Cleaning Lady, brought to you by the Volta Way. Confession number one. I'd been feeling a little distracted at the time. A bit lonely and evaluating being single. Then I received an email from Joanna here from G-Town Radio. She has the Sunday dinner mixtape show. Well, she emailed me saying that there was a community audio journalism class that our neighbor station, WPEB, was offering. Perfect. Wednesday nights for six weeks? Book it. Something to do. That'll keep my mind busy for a minute. And it did. I learned a lot in that class, not just about radio, but about collaboration deadlines, and a heart that goes into a story. In this episode of Confessions of a Cleaning Lady, I want to share my final project that was collaborated with some of my classmates. You'll hear different voices talking from different perspectives about the issue of guns and gun control. It was a true joy collaborating with my classmates, and thank you to everyone who put this together. This show focuses on our culture's relationship with firearms in the midst of horrific gun violence. You'll hear from gun safety organizations, people who choose to own a gun, the conflicts that lie in our hearts and minds as we examine our feelings about guns and hear from those who see the world without them. I'll share a personal story about living in my neighborhood, Germantown, Philadelphia, and the effects of one particular crime and how it had me questioning having a gun myself. I'm your host, Lois Volta, And this program has been brought to you by the Education Department of WPEB. When we take the time to think about how we feel about the issues and policies of gun control, I can't help wanting to hear what people are saying on the ground level in our city. What are the people with microphones saying? What are the people who rally around them? What are they listening to? I want to be on the pulse, closer to the stage. I'm listening. On March 26th, Not On My Watch organization exposes gun violence outside of City Hall and pleads to hold Mayor Kenny and District Attorney Larry Krasner accountable. The group Uhuru joins them in demanding programs for children and paying jobs for the youth. 
with the highest record of murders this year, when will the city officials recognize that the citizens of Philadelphia matter? I have a pervert peeping Tom who's come to my home four times within the last month. The first time he came, I was sitting in the living room with my friend. We were drinking a bottle of wine, listening to some records, kicking it back like a couple of girlfriends. My friend looked at the window and then looked at me and said, there's someone in the window. About eight feet from us, there was a man standing in the window, filming us with his cell phone while licking between his fingers. It seemed as though the man enjoyed being noticed. He wasn't at all nervous that we saw him and he wanted to film our reaction. We slowly stood up, got out of sight of the window, and I called security. I live in an interesting place. I live in an old caretaker's cottage on the grounds of a school. There's 24 buildings on the campus of the school and there's one security guard that mans the school at night. When I called the security guard, he came over as quick as he could, saw the man and chased him away. I called the cops, filed a police report and it actually took a couple days for it to sit in what had happened. I think there was part of my brain that just blocked it out so I could be in survival mode because I still had to be mom and I still had to make things feel safe for my kids and for myself. I went to the hardware store, got a couple motion lights. I figured maybe if I put some lights back there, they'll stop coming. Four days later, I saw footprints in the snow. So I called to file the second police report. After he came the second time, I got a motion light and motion camera installed in the backyard and a motion camera for the front yard. I also got two signs and posted them on either side of the house saying that this property is under 24 hour video surveillance. But this didn't stop him from coming back a third time. He walked into my backyard, the lights flash on, cameras recording, and he looks in each window. 
but he likes the living room window. I called and filed my third police report. Two days later, I got a security system put into my house. A week and a half later, at 8.45 p.m. on a Monday evening, as my three teenage girls were in the living room and I was in the dining room, we saw the backyard light flick on. I told the girls to go upstairs. It's okay. I got out of sight and I called 911. The man so coolly walked out of my backyard and onto the grounds of the school. It's like he's afraid of nothing. It makes him seem so dangerous. This guy is getting increasingly bold and I need to figure out how to protect myself. I am the executive director of Texas Gun Sense. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that advocates for common sense gun policies. What are some of the things that are going on on a national level? We concentrate on the state of Texas, but we do we are in touch with national organizations and national information. Um, and so I know that the president has uh, talked about improving background checks, banning assault weapons. Those are most smartly done, I would have to say, at the national level. So we're certainly watching those and talking to our national contacts. Our priorities are uh, universal background checks, so anybody that sells a gun has to go through the background check system, and extreme risk protection orders, which is a civil process uh, for someone who's in crisis to be temporarily separated from their firearms. And then we're always interested in safe storage. There are a few bills, call it a public health campaign about gun safety called Keep Em Safe Texas, that we worked very hard to, uh, you know, I like to be positive and proactive, but I would say that there are some dangerous, that's the best word, um, bills that have been introduced. And so we fight them the same way. We talk to as many people as we can. We get our supporters. So in times like this, you know, back-to-back shootings, um, you know, that, that have caught national attention, international attention, um, mm-hmm. what sort of what sort of these dangerous bills? Permitless carry. Uh, so carrying a handgun without a license to carry. Folks who are interested in the policy tend to talk about constitutional carry. We correctly refer to it as permitless carry because we all know that um, the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, have said that the Second Amendment is certainly changes and um, policies can be made that are smart to keep people safe. Some of the data that you guys are working with, you look at the disproportion between inner cities um, or places outside of inner cities. But can you just talk a little bit about the disproportionate effect gun violence has on inner cities? Yes, we try to raise that because it's relevant to, I would say, everything that we do. And it's a clear, um, I don't know if I'd call it a divide among legislators, that ones from rural districts are very um, protective of that. And we have huge urban centers in, in Texas. So those folks understand how big cities work. And how does uh, law enforcement uh, play a role? Um... 
So this session in particular um, related to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. George Floyd was from Texas. He's buried in Texas, families in Texas. And so that's a personal issue for many of us in Texas. There are a number of bills, one that was heard today called the George Floyd Act uh, that we supported. And it addresses, oh, a number of um, police policies, uh, maybe, maybe most controversially, the issue of qualified immunity. And we support bills that are in, way, in a way related. You know, our mission is, uh, is about gun safety. So things like um, qualified immunity and duty to intervene and processes when deadly force is used are all very important to Texans and very important and related to gun violence. But when there's an issue of a person being deprived of their essential rights, you know, up to and including um, being killed, we need to look at those situations and we need to be able to hold um, bad police responsible for their actions. We worry about the flood of guns after the George Floyd murder because of the, uh, you know, domestic violence, people are at stress levels that are huge, suicide, 60 plus percent of gun deaths are by or suicides. Our top three priorities are universal background checks, extremist protection orders, and safe storage, particularly the safe gun storage um, public safety campaign. The other two, there are House and Senate bills for um, universal background checks, working hard on them. There are some bills that would improve the background check system, but not be universal. We work on those too. Um, there are bills filed, uh, extremist protection order bills on the House and the Senate side. We'll push for those. Those may be less likely than the others. Um, permitless carry, I'm very, very worried that that might pass. Um, I keep a list of uh, 200 bills, I think. And um, so most folks, when they think of gun deaths, they tend to think of homicides, for example. But there's unintentional injuries and suicide are very important for us to message about those as well. Thank you so much for your time. That was Camilla Smith talking with Gail Switzer, a gun safety advocate who sheds light on unintentional deaths and suicides as the leading cause of gun-related incidents. From another side of the community is Gladys Harlow talking with Mike, 20 years old, about how he speaks up about the use of guns and how it has affected him and his peers. The issue affected you of, of youth having guns in their hands? Well, it has too much affected me, but it has affected my peers and everyone that's around me because I live in an area and I see it every day. So basically what it do is it's just, uh, it's a hard it's a hard thing. Basically the trenches, the trenches is everything in, in, in the West Philly area where these kids run around with different guns and stuff. And it's just very, it's real wild, super duper wild. And they get it from the rappers and all these dudes that they're looking up to and everybody. It's just, it's nonsense. What do you think we can do to help the kids or support them? 
more youth, oh, more youth programs, more um, youth educators, more more stuff that the kids can do yeah, to and, uh, keep themselves proactive. Instead of them being in the house playing games all day, learning from Grand Theft Auto, learning from Call of Duty, learning from stuff like that. Me and my, me and myself, I box. There's a lot of dudes, a lot of young dudes out here that's in this area that fight on the street. Why not fight for money? Get them a chance. Mm. That's all. I love that. Any any advice? Anything you want to say to the youth out there? Uh, yeah, just. Stay out the way. I mean, look, be young. Be a kid. Stop trying to grow too fast. Be a kid. Listen. Open mind, open hearts. It's enough money for everybody in this world. Like myself, I just turned 20, so I'm not too old myself. And I drive a nice, very nice car. My own money, like, I stay out the way. It's not hard to stay out the way. It's not hard to not have a gun. Just do, make, do your own stuff. I've been really trying to consider what would make me feel really safe in the situation that I'm in. Because I don't want this one person in my world, in my neighborhood, community, just one person out there to be able to take so much from me. To take my safety, to take my peace of mind, my freedom just to be with my kids for their peace of mind. I'm starting to notice some of the psychological side effects that have been happening ever since this man started coming. The consistent theme that I'm learning about myself is that I can be calm and slow in a tense situation. I don't know if this is good or bad yet. It seems like it's serving me well for right now. The more times he comes, I've learned how to respond to these types of situations. Call the cops, make sure the kids are okay, the doors are locked, we're okay, we're inside. Keep on going, learn from your experience. What do you do next? This is not the type of learned behavior that women should have to know. How to protect ourselves like this? I've started to have visceral physical reactions when I see men that I don't know. Not all men, but just some that make me feel scared, nervous, tense. These are new feelings that I carry with me everywhere I go now. When I go into a store and there's a man behind me, I just start to feel tense. The thought of going on a hike alone now is just completely off the table. I mean, walking around my neighborhood is off the table right now. I'm also at this point where I'm not done talking about it. It's still fresh, it's still alive, it's still happening, but I feel like I might be exhausting my friends. I have that feeling that people don't wanna talk about it anymore. Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. Maybe I'm just uncomfortable talking to people about it because I can tell it's making them uncomfortable and they can't really do anything about it. I find myself continually doubting myself that it's a big deal. Is it a big deal or will just the problem go away? The police have it under control. Oh my goodness, I just want a dog. But I don't know if I can handle a dog right now. And how big of an issue is this? Do I take on more responsibility just so I feel safe? I mean, what else can I do really? I really, really hope he doesn't come back. 
but there's something about the way this guy is playing it so fearless so bold that it makes me wonder if he's waiting for some type of crescendo so I do everything I possibly can do to stay in my power to stay strong calm aware observe but most importantly go to the community meeting next Tuesday Cool. My name is Christo. I use they, them pronouns. I live in West Philadelphia. So I did not grow up. I did not grow up around guns at all. Um, I grew up in Maryland, D.C. My parents who, yeah, just guns were not a part of their reality like, whatsoever. I did come to learn later, though, that my my family's, or sorry, my, my mom's side of the family is from Haiti and um, guns very much were a part of like their reality. Uh, just because of all the like political violence and all that stuff that you know is still very much happening right now but uh yeah i did not grow up with guns it wasn't until i was in college i had someone that i was living with who's one of my closest friends started i guess yeah collecting guns towards the end of college um so the house that i lived in guns were very present you know they were like locked up safely and all of that but it was like i don't know he was kind of the only person in the house that was like you know, cool with guns. It didn't wasn't like a non-consensual thing. Like, you know, everyone was like fine with him having them, but no one was really like into guns, right? And yeah, I guess a little bit later, like as I got more comfortable just like with the fact that they were in the house and he was like, no, you should like learn how to like use them if you like want. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. And so he took us to, he took me and a couple other friends to a shooting range. And you know, this is like Greensboro, North Carolina the gun shop that we went to was just like super white and super i don't know uncomfortable um you know being like a, a black queer person uh <laughs> just yeah you know it was it was strange but um yeah we like you know started shooting and at the time i i, I suffer from a lot of like mental illness um related things and at the time i was like not in a good uh, mental emotional state and um just like being around guns for the first time and like hearing gunshots and like feeling <laughs> feeling them come out of my hand like was actually quite scary for me i like kept imagining like being like you know shot in the head or, or you know doing that um uh, i would yeah i just like was not comfortable and after that experience I was just like i don't well, it's not my it's not my thing <laughs> i'm not trying to yeah I'm, I'm cool with my friends doing it and not having them but like it's not it's not for me um, and then fast forward, like, I don't know, about a decade, that same friend still was in North Carolina, went down to visit him a couple of times, and he, like, has a piece of land off the grid and has, like, a shooting range outdoor that he, like, set up, and so gave it another shot and felt much more comfortable with, with it, and my, I guess, yeah, my views on guns had changed over time in that span of 10 years after reading Negroes with Guns by Robert F. Williams and learning about other Black revolutionaries and like the history of like armed, yeah, um, self-defense in Black radical circles. And yeah, that, that, that's really what, what changed, you know, started to change how I feel about guns and um, my relationship to them. Yeah, after this past summer, summer 2020, when all the uprisings were happening, when there was all of this I don't know. I don't even know like how to <laughs> how to like what to call it right now. Um, but summer 2020. Uh, I was living. I was living in um, 
like deep South Philly in like a really like white neighborhood. And I remember after George Floyd was killed and protests started erupting across the country, I remember like being in my neighborhood with my partner at the time. And there was just this white dude walking around my neighborhood with a Glock on his on his hip, you know, like on his waist. And it was like very clearly a you know, you know, very clearly felt like a reaction to like what was happening in the political climate of the city. Uh, it made me like super uncomfortable. And like, more, I think more than anything, it made me like really mad, you know, like, I feel like, yeah, I don't know when I think about gun control and gun laws and like people talking about Second Amendment and all this, like, I feel like it's largely like a white male project agenda you know thing and it makes me yeah i just i have a lot of feelings about that and like i started realizing like there are there are people in my community like around me who like own guns and like don't have my best interests in mind or like see me see me in a particular way that is like not me or like you know like you know no one's gonna <laughs> someone like wants to to shoot me they're not gonna think twice about doing it um given these assumptions that they have made about me so yeah, in September I went to visit my friend in Asheville or outside of Asheville and we kind of like the purpose of that, not the purpose, but like one of my um, intentions in going to visit him was to practice shooting guns because I, by that time, you know, it was after the summer, by that time I had decided that, you know, I might want to own a firearm soon. So I'm like, yeah, just like to protect myself, my loved ones. And um, yeah, so I dropped out to Asheville, we like shot guns, uh, I felt really comfortable with it. There's one gun in particular, it's a Beretta Cheetah, it's like a nine millimeter short pistol that I was like, if I were to own a gun, it would be this one. And I told him that and I was like, yeah, like, you know, if you like come across anything, let me know. Like I have a little bit of money right now, like I'm, I'm down to do this. Um, like a week later, he's like, oh, hey, I found it. <laughs> I found this like military surplus pistol, um, it's the same one. Um, so I bought it and um, it was a really interesting experience buying a gun um you know <laughs> from like just ordering it online to like having it shipped to like a gun store in north philly and like how easy it was you know um that weirded me out for sure but i was just like all right i guess this is what it is like <laughs> this is how it works you know and yeah i guess also like i guess there was like a minor sense of urgency in doing it when i did it because i i do think and hope that gun laws are going to start to change soon and that it no longer becomes as like ridiculously easy to get a firearm um but again like you know as i mentioned earlier like thinking about like white men in my mind being like the folks that own the most guns in this country it's like i don't like that i don't feel comfortable with that like i don't <laughs> you know so like i want to be able to like be on i wanted to be able to like arm myself before it you know, it was going to be something that was going to be more difficult to do, if that makes sense. And I've only shot it once. Uh, I went out to an outdoor range with a um, good friend of mine. And it was, yeah, it was a funny experience. We, like, <laughs> walked up. It's, like, all of these, like, white dudes, like, shooting, like, assault rifles. And it's, like, you know, these, like, two, like, little queerdos, like, walking up and, like, popping off a magazine, like, just getting back in the car and going back to Philly. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I haven't, I haven't done it since. And, like, I don't feel, I don't honestly, like, well, I want to say that things are, like, calming down, but that's not true. There's changing and evolving. But, like, I don't feel the same sense of, you know, fear is the right word, concern. Yeah, I don't know. Like when I'm when I'm walking around now, just walking around. I don't like just to be clear. I don't like carry a gun with me. It's like it stays in it stays in a drawer in my room. But yeah, just like when I'm walking around the city now, uh, I don't feel 
the same way as I did back in like August or September, you know, like I feel a little like less, I feel like a little bit more at ease. So yeah, I just, it's like a thing that I have that like, again, sits in my drawer, like I have, I've got a couple of friends um, who are also like black folks around my age who recently got guns like after I did and um, their parents got guns too. Um, so they've been like going out with their parents and shooting and um, I, I'm like, you know, I'm going to do that with them eventually. And like, I am so excited about that um, because their parents are Jamaican, I'm Haitian. Just like thinking about, I don't know, this like family that <laughs> is like from similar, you know, place that I am, like having like similar thoughts about like black gun ownership and like just doing this thing together, like sounds like super healing and like super, yeah, fun and beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, really stoked about that. Do you currently support restrictions on gun ownership? I do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. I was actually watching something this morning. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was talking about gun, changing um, gun laws and strengthening gun control and like background checks. And it's like, you need three references on an application to work at Foot Locker. Yeah. Like, <laughs> why can't you, why can't you have like three people as references saying that like they think you're a responsible person who like should own a firearm? It's so backwards to me. It feels so backwards to me. Um, again, like, you know, having gone to the store and like, to, you know, per, like it was so easy. It was so easy. And I don't think it should be like that. I'm glad that I did it when I did it, I guess. But um, yeah, I guess another thing is like, I want to probably wouldn't do it. Like where I'm at now, where things are at now, like I wouldn't have done that, you know? Um, but in any event, um, yeah, I, I do think it, it just, it's, it, it is scary how easy it is to buy. Oh, last other thing. The other thing, the other thing I want to say about that, this thing that I was watching this morning, um, people are like so, so hot on the Second Amendment right thing, but like I, I don't have the amendment in front of me. I don't like read the Constitution, but there's a part of that amendment that is about well-regulated militias and like the right to bear arms being connected to like well-regulated militias from like, you know, back when that was a thing, when people like, you know, common citizens would fight those militias um, in service of the government. So bananas to think about. But um, yeah, everyone's like so hot on this like Second Amendment thing, but like look at January 6th, like our like militias, it's like uh, self-organized are not, not regulated at all. And like whose interests are they serving? You know, like it's not that argument, I think just like has so many holes in it. Yeah, just like taking away Second Amendment rights. It's like anti-American, like some, some stupid stuff like that. That's all. Seems like a lot of what you have said has aligned you with like, you like having a gun and seek that out because it's leveling the playing field and it's like a defensive thing. Do you feel at all on the side of things where you are interested in having a gun, I guess, in like an active revolutionary sense? I think that's all. That was also part of my decision to, to like make the purchase. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like one thing that I do think is possible and likely in our lifetimes is like some form of revolution. And yeah, I mean, I think that <laughs> oh, I'm gonna be a little careful with what I say. It's it's hard for me to imagine like being active with with my firearm in that context, but it's not something that I would be opposed to and it's something that like I would participate in um, if I felt strongly enough about it. <laughs> I think that more folks of color and more queer folks uh, and trans folks should 
arm themselves if they got something that they're like feel compelled to do. Um, because there there may very well come a time when, yeah, I don't know, um, something something pops off on a larger scale, and um, yeah, those are the folks that I would want to like feel protected and defended and like ready. That was a portion of a conversation that Jackie Milestone had with Christo, a black queer person talking about how it feels important for them to arm themselves in the cultural context that we're in. Rob Grace interviews Kurt, gun range safety officer, who gives his perspective on what it means to train people to use guns safely. It's a sunny afternoon in Narberth, and I'm here with Kurt to talk about 2A, Second Amendment and guns. Kurt, where do you work? I work at a shooting range called the Gun Range in Center City, Philadelphia. I am a range safety officer, customer service, and shooting instructor. Is there certification for that, or how do you how do you get that job? Yeah, to be a range safety officer, you have to be a, you have to get certified by the NRA. It's an eight-hour or six-hour course. I can't remember which, but uh, it's pretty. Uh, you know, there's a lot of information. You got to get tested and actually pass the test at the end of it. And how did you how did you get into that? What what qualified you to even try to get qualified for that particular thing? Uh, just prior service, you know, and uh, just a knowledge of firearms and actually being one of the few people that can safely handle a firearm. Did, did you grow up with them? No, I did not. My family is very anti-Second Amendment. And are you an NRA member? I am not. Is that by design? Is that conscious? Yes. The NRA was originally supposed to be just a civilian marksmanship program and then became so much more than that with, you know, spending millions and millions of dollars not even to help the Second Amendment, just to pay themselves. It's a pretty corrupt organization that doesn't even do what it was supposed to do in the first place. You know, they're really not supposed to be lobbyists in the first place. There's tons of other, you know, organizations out there that do the same, that do what they do. They're just supposed to literally educate the civilians about marksmanship and firearm safety. That's why the NRA is supposed to exist. And do you know, how do, how do PA gun laws compare to other states? PA is a very, I don't want to say loose, but uh, definitely they're pro, very pro-Second Amendment. It's a very red state once you leave Penn, Philadelphia, and even Pittsburgh is a red city. So you can own suppressors here, machine guns, anything you want, basically, as long as you go through the proper you know, fields and pay all the right money to the right people. Where do you stand on, on limitations, or what would you like to see differently? So we all want the same thing, less school shootings, less, you know, firearm murders, all that, you know, but I don't know, it's really hard to find that line where you're not breaching, you know, privacy laws with this, you know, the mental health and everything and still, you know, but also I don't want crazy people to have guns and how do you actually do that is always, you know, that's my, my question, I guess, is that I can't give you an answer. I can just give you a question. Mental health writ large or people with mental health issues tend to get demonized. We don't have a lockdown. We don't have a monopoly on people with mental health issues and citizens with mental health issues, but we have mass shootings on a scale that, that no other country has, industrialized or not. And the reality is we've got hundreds of millions of guns. We've got more guns than people, and that seems to be the only sort of hard and fast fact that, that separates us, that, that gives any kind of plausible explanation for this. I think the like you're totally right you know like yeah there are a lot of guns in this country a lot of you know what people call mil military pattern rifles in this country and stuff like that 
And in my, from my opinion, you know, a civilian doesn't really need to own an AR-15. That being said, I own one. True. At the range, I'm sure you get into conversations with, with people that are across the spectrum, but do you, do you have to check yourself, or are you able to kind of meet people where they're at or, or talk to them freely? I keep a very tight lip, and I usually tend to be on the more liberal end of things in terms of the Second Amendment community. 23 million guns were sold in 2020. Yep. And Most of them were through first-time fire owners, I believe. Millions, literal millions of first-time gun owners, many of whom had no training whatsoever in order to procure that firearm, and that's the scariest type of person to own one when it gets into that situation. Exactly. So that that is great because one of my biggest parts or hardest parts of my job at the gun range is literally, you know, we get new shoot new people, new new firearm owners in there. They just got their concealment license. They're very excited, you know, cool, awesome. But then they say things like, "Oh, now I can just go shoot people." And you're like, "No." Are you willing to take the risk of of being unarmed when somebody could be armed in your home? Well, again, like you said, it's exceedingly rare that people actually break into houses and you know, like the criminals, the professional criminals, they're smart. They don't want to go into the house when you're there. That's how you get caught. That's how you get into a fight. That's how you catch a murder charge. It's the dumb criminals who do that, and they tend to get caught almost immediately because they're dumb. And, you know, painting painting with broad brushstrokes, that's exactly what I've been thinking about these new gun owners is you've got a dumb criminal, maybe a, a teenager that, that breaks into your house. Then all of a sudden this, this kid is confronted by somebody carrying a gun, probably shaking and, you know, voice voice cracking and it suddenly escalates the situation to a level that it wouldn't be with, in the absence of that of that weapon. Yeah, and again, which is why I tell people, like, you know, unless as long as everyone in your family is safe, don't even interact with them if you don't have to. Let them stay on the first floor. Let them do whatever. You know, it's just, again, like, you don't know if they have a gun, if they have, if they have training, if they're young and inexperienced, if they're going to be shaking with their finger on the trigger, they might sneeze and shoot you accidentally. The ATF presence of the gun shows that you're talking about, that's specifically for straw purchases or... Uh, mostly, yes, yeah, straw purchases. You know, they're all undercover in plain clothes. They don't they don't want the customers to know that they're an ATA, ATF agent. You know, they're also looking for things like guys selling, you know, they call them solvent traps, but it's very easy to manufacture that into a suppressor, which you could do legally if you file with the ATF. Most people who are buying these are not doing that. And if the ATF agent overhears you saying to your buddy, like, oh, we'll just bring that home and make it, you know, a silencer. We don't have to register it. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to be knocking on your door <laughs> in a couple of days. But the, I mean, the gun shows are often talked about because there's the exemption for the for the background check, correct? If you're if you're buying it private party, if you're buying it uh, at a gun show, that that same requirement doesn't exist. So that is a very common misconception, and it's actually people refer to as the gun show loophole. There's no gun show loophole. If you are a firearms vendor and you are selling firearms, you have a federal firearms license and FFL, you must do a background check. You have to do a background check. Now the loophole, I was doing quotations that people don't realize they call it the gun show loophole. That's just state law. Right now, if I wanted to sell Rob an AR-15, as long as it wasn't a, a class three firearm, I could do that right here, right now. We just need to draw up a bill of sale. I can sell it to him for a dollar, as long as he has a state ID. That's it, any long arm. Handguns are different. You cannot do a private transfer of those. I didn't know about that distinction with handguns and long guns mm -hmm. for the private party. Yeah, private party, you could, handgun, you have to go to a gun store and actually do a background check and get do the transfer, so to speak. That's another thing that people don't realize. They always say the firearm registry. There is no firearm registry. It doesn't exist unless you have a class three or class two or class four firearm or destructive device. So when like the police find a firearm at a murder scene, say, and they're like, oh, this is the gun that shot the lady or whatever. 
they have to run the serial number, go to the manufacturer, then the manufacturer will tell them what distributor they sent that firearm to, and then the distributor will tell them what's, what gun store they sent that to. And then the gun store is only legally required to keep that, that paperwork for 12 years. In fact, they're supposed to destroy it after 12 years. So if that firearm was bought over 12 years ago, there's a good chance the police will never be able to know who that came from. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying factual. You know, most people are mistaken about that. That's what I like to do. I like to educate. You know, not take a stance, just tell people, well, this is how it is. Absolutely. We've certainly done that for me. <laughs> I thank you for your time, Kurt. Anytime, Rob. Always a pleasure. All right. People have all different ways of responding to a story like this from someone they're close with. Their friend is in danger. There's a dangerous thing happening. The girl's dad gave me mace and a plastic BB gun that looks like a real gun, but wouldn't hurt anybody with a plastic pellet. I've still yet to shoot it and try it. I'm scared for some reason, and I don't really know why. Maybe it makes the situation feel a little bit more real, or the possibility of having a real gun real. A girlfriend of mine gave me a wooden sword and another one of my friends gave me a baseball bat. There's a certain type of confidence that I feel knowing that I trained martial arts for a long time. But the thought of this man getting close enough that either one of us could touch each other makes me terrified. One of my friends let me borrow their dog for a couple days. Other friends text me, check up on me, make sure I'm okay. These types of voyeuristic crimes statistically lead to sexual assault. This is not a good feeling. This is a terrible feeling. I'm immersed in a crime against women. I posted the video surveillance on a neighborhood Facebook page. I found out that my house wasn't the only house that he was trying to look in the windows of, but he actually tried to get into another woman's home who lives a block and a half away from me. This woman is the head of the Penn Knox Neighborhood Association. Fancy that. Knowing I'm not the only one makes this man seem more dangerous. How many women, how many houses has he been targeting? But knowing that I'm not the only one also makes me feel stronger because I'm not the only one. It's not just my problem. We have a community problem, a neighborhood problem. There is a man lurking in the shadows and in plain sight, peering into windows, making sexually explicit gestures and trying to get into buildings. This is a big deal. I mean, now's a good enough time as any to think about why I don't have a gun or why I'd wanna get a gun. I think I've always thought if I had a gun that it would just attract violent energy to me so I just didn't want to have one. But that's not the case. Violent 
awful, terrible energy is all around us and wants to get into our house and wants to make us scared if we have a gun or not. And that's just reality. I feel like there's a bigger war against women that's happening. This type of behavior is not okay. It is not okay for women to feel scared in their own homes. It's crossed my mind a bunch of times that maybe I should get suited up and ready. I've only shot a gun once. My mom and I traveled to Texas to visit my little brother and he picked us up from the airport. We dropped off our suitcases to where we were staying. He tells us to get in the car. We had no idea where we were going, but he drove right to the shooting range. He pulls out two guns from under the seat of his car and says, welcome to Texas. We go in, get our ammo, and my brother teaches me how to shoot a 45 semi-automatic and a small revolver. The 45 was a little bit too strong, loud, and scary for me, but that revolver fit quite nicely in my hand, and I actually had a pretty good aim as I shot at that silhouette of a person on that paper target. I felt pretty proud of myself that I had such a good shot on my first try that I brought that paper home back to Philadelphia, and I have it hanging in my closet. I see it every day. It's a reminder that I could always get a gun. But this feeling doesn't feel good for me. It feels like a concession. To say that it's okay to use violence against violence. Violence destroys lives in Pennsylvania, especially in places like Philadelphia, and really creates damage to the fabric of a community. I mean, the emotional and mental trauma of the violence is significant. And last year, routine daily occurrences of going to the park, going to school, saying goodbye to a friend and going to the basketball cart turned deadly for 500 people. So it's something we live with in our city and it's something we don't have to live with. Three policies that will deal with the full scope of this violence. Lost and stolen reporting, which requires if you're missing, your firearm goes missing or stolen, you have to report it. That's pretty common sense, but it's become a major flowing source of illegal firearm trafficking. That will help address the homicides and shootings and, and community level violence. Extreme risk protection orders to say, if you know that your loved one, your friend, your family member is potentially gonna commit suicide or uh, a mass shooting, you have a mechanism to temporarily remove that firearm so they can get the help that they desperately need and then go back to owning a firearm, whether it's for personal safety or hunting. Um, and closing a hole in our background check system. And these are common sense evidence. There are amazing groups here in the city of Philadelphia and all around the state that really, I think on a shoestring budget, enact programs to de-escalate situations, to do street walking programs to prevent the violence from happening or spreading. And they do it on minimal resources off. The best tools we have to fight this crisis is to invest in the community-based violence prevention programs that are health-based, that are trauma-informed, that are proven scientifically to cut violence by 30, 40, 50%, and really will save the lives of folks. And those sort of programs need the resources and will pay dividends, not only you know, in terms of lives saved, but financially here in Philadelphia and in many cities.
Um, and in the state of Pennsylvania, in a lot of different ways, the gun violence problem is an everyday problem. And what I think gun, whether, look, there's a lot of firearms that have already been sold, and I think there's still going to be a plenty out there. But there are things that we can do that can reduce the risk in our society that someone is going to be shot, even if people have guns. And so what we're working on is how do we make our community safer and how do we save the lives of our loved ones by putting in common sense protections that keep weapons out of the hands of people that might want to harm themselves or others, that help ensure people are properly trained and have safe storage to make sure we don't have accidental shooting deaths of young children, which we've seen happen, obviously, in the last year here in Philadelphia. People often buy firearms for safety, but it doesn't make them safer. And so we want to make sure that people are safe and surviving those encounters. And whether there are guns out there in the world or not, there's still going to be guns sold. We're still going to have guns in America. I think that cat's out of the bag a long time ago. But we can still take some actions to make sure that we're saving the lives of 1,600 people a year that are shot and killed in Pennsylvania. There's this perception that organizations like Ceasefire PA and other gun safety organizations are about removing firearms. And the Second Amendment has become a sacrosanct religion in this country. And I think that um, that has created a very strong opposition to any policy, no matter how strong the evidence is, that it will save the lives of Pennsylvanians. Um, and I think that has really challenged us because what we have is we have the facts on our side. Study after study shows things like lost and stolen to require reporting of missing weapons will slow the illegal flow of firearms used in homicides and shootings that safe storage will, of course, mean a kid can't get their hand on a firearm. This isn't rocket science all the time. But any potential restriction of what people perceive as firearms gets looked at sometime in this way of that is unacceptable, rather than looking at the other side of the equation, which is the damage it's doing, not just to the lost life, and I think we focus on that rightly, but I really think about this emotional and mental trauma that the the violence is causing to the immediate people to that lost one and to the community as a whole. And so I think we have to shift that narrative and mobilize more people to recognize that if we're gonna have a safe community and everything that we want that comes with that, it has to start with addressing gun violence. 60% of gun deaths in Pennsylvania are suicide and it's heavily white rural areas, white men, um, and those loss of lives is destroying communities and families. So I don't think we can look at a, a one size solution for all types of gun violence. But what I think we can do is recognize that no matter how gun violence is tearing apart a community, how it's impacting the ones we love and the loss, that we're bound together in our grief and that can bind us together in a demand for action. And look for the solutions that are gonna reduce suicide and look for the solutions that are gonna reduce shootings and homicides. What I wanna do is say, we don't need a solution that fits everything. But what we do need to do is find a solution for all forms of gun violence, and those may be different. That was Adam Garber from Ceasefire PA talking with Camilo Smith about what actions the organization is taking to reduce gun violence in Philadelphia and how there's a need to recognize the emotional and mental trauma that it has on loved ones and the community. Gladys Harlow talks with Earl Woods, committee member of Stop the Violence, and some other members of the community as they lead an initiative to bring more youth programs to the city to help kids get off the street and out of reach of guns. 
There's a lot of killing going on in the community. And we out here to let these kids know that we do care. There's men and women out here that's saying that we do care for you kids. We got water, sodas, and it's all free. And you guys can just come get it and drink it and do whatever you like. And uh, we out here for you kids. We just trying to get y'all back. It would be good to have some programs for the kids. Is that something you've talked about? I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, what we got in plan. Uh, we uh, got uh, 53rd and uh, Woodland uh, Auto uh, getting back for parole, parolees. And uh, they distribute food and they give it back to the community in so different ways. Uh, basically, we're trying to start a program there for the youth to bring them there and talk to them and uh, give them scholarships and things like that. So we're in the recruiting process now of getting the kids to come up to 53rd and Woodland to actually get them recruited and, uh, and get them certificates for auto and all those things. Where can we get more information about getting involved with Okay, uh, my name is Earl Woods, and my number is 267-575-5802. I am the committee man, and you can actually hit me up anytime, or you can hit me on my Facebook at Earl Woods. I mean, just leave me a message, DM me, whatever, and I'll always get back with you, because more hands is the best hands. My dad gave me some great coping advice about 10 years ago. He said to me, some people out there want to play tackle football. They just want to knock you down. But you don't have to play their game. You can play badminton if you want. A problem comes to you, ping, deflected, ping, deflected. Be smarter about it, more agile, with some finesse. Another coping strategy that I have is to really stop and breathe in when things are beautiful, good, wonderful, holistic, kind, loving, friendly, wonderful, everything that's good, just to feel that feeling completely. And there are moments where I feel as though I'm experiencing heaven on earth. And with the polarity of the situation, the extreme fear, I also feel this overwhelming sense of love. It's unbelievable. I love my family so much. I love my girls so much. I love our house so much, the way we live so much. I love our lives. So I gotta walk this middle path. I'm not gonna let this person destroy me or take anything else from me not my power no way so i find the beautiful pieces in this complex puzzle as i try to piece it together i met my neighbors i met more people in my community my neighborhood i'm talking about this problem with other people i'm making it real it is an issue i'm speaking up i'm hearing my voice and I'm seeing how people are starting to come together because it's not just my problem. It's not just a victim's problem. It's everyone's problem in the community when these types of things happen. And there's power in numbers. When people come together, 
when communities come together, when neighbors come together, we build a safety net that we can be held in. This is more powerful than a loaded gun. I've also been thinking a lot about how safety is a privilege. I used to think I was safe and that I had freedom, but I'm realizing how naive I was. I don't think I was fully in tune with the dangers that came with my neighborhood when I moved in eight years ago. I've lived in this neighborhood for eight years and have yet to go to a community meeting. That's messed up. With freedom comes responsibility. Get involved in your community. Your neighbor could be in danger. How would you even know if you didn't go to the meetings? There's power in numbers, and I know that deep down. But why does something have to happen to me for me to get involved? And why does my mind go so quickly to... How can I make this person go away? I should get a gun. I don't want to shoot anybody. I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to get shot. I don't want to be peeped on. It takes an extraordinary amount of trust though. To trust that you'll be held in that safety net. Well, I got to trust that the people who do get themselves involved do so because they care. That to me feels like a side effect from love and love casts out fear and I can hold my head high, reassure the children that they are protected by their mother and I trust and I trust and I trust and I love, and I love, and I love, and I don't need to get a gun. This show has been a production of the Prometheus Radio Project and the Education Department of WPEB. Thanks for listening. And... I got a dog. I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. I also wanted to say I did get a dog. Her name is Dottie. She's amazing. The girls and I feel so much safer. She's a great dog and I've been walking her through the neighborhood and really enjoying the neighborhood in a whole new way with a whole new lens. And 
I love Germantown. I love you, Germantown. If you know some women in Germantown who might need to know this information about there being a guy out there, just be safe. Let people know. Maybe we can catch them together. Up next, listen up with Tom Cassetta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>